Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. I just want to start off, first of all, saying it is so good to be back home. Home in a way of, I grew up in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, so I'm a native Wisconsin-ite. And uh, also at Later on, after I went away to college, came back, did graduate school here at UW, so I am also an alum of UW, and uh, so always great to come, see familiar faces, meet new friends, and be here at this new church plant. We are thrilled, thrilled at what God is doing here. Uh, I'm coming from Church of the Resurrection, the Cathedral of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest that also sent out Scott and Marissa, that sent out others, and um, as Scott will share in a little bit, will be sending us out soon to do something similar. So thank you for your hospitality and inviting us here. We're so glad to be here. Have you ever felt like you didn't fit somewhere? People were saying things you didn't get. People were eating food you didn't care for. People were watching things you didn't understand. And you're thinking, am I on the same planet as these people? Worlds often collide with one another. This is the stuff that romantic comedies are made of, right? It's the, these, couldn't, these two people could not have fallen in love, but they did. And I think of this movie, New in Town, back in 2009, um, great movie of a female executive from Miami being reassigned to New Ulm, Minnesota, a tiny Minnesota town, and so she leaves this sunny beach-inhabited place, and she goes to this freezing cold, tiny town, and she despises it. She doesn't like the weather, she doesn't like the food, she doesn't like the people, but of course, since this is a romantic comedy, her heart starts to warm toward the people, she starts to fall for this um, handsome, eligible bachelor, that's part of the script, right? But by the end, she starts to embrace the people as her own. What do we do when our worlds collide? That's one option, we embrace everything of this new world, another option, assimilate bits and pieces, arm's length, and not allow any influence at all, or maybe kind of assimilate bits and pieces, and so we have this new third thing. You've been going through this great series in the book of Acts. Acts is a story of the early church. In a way, we could almost frame it as worlds colliding. We've got the early world of the, the community of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the church, coming up against other worlds in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of the outline of the book of Acts. And different things happen in the lives of different people. Sometimes people embrace the message. They convert. Sometimes they fight against it and force Paul out, which is why he even finds himself in Athens in the first place. Sometimes they sort of assimilate bits and pieces into this thing that's not really their original culture, but it's not really Christian faith. And, and so there's this interesting dynamic that plays out when worlds collide. And so Paul, we have this great Christian apostle, the foremost Christian apostle perhaps, in the foremost cultural center in that time of the world. Two worlds are colliding. We're set up for this, what is, what is going to happen? 
We greatly anticipate to see what happens when these two worlds collide. And I think we can look at Paul's life and how he responds and take that for us today in a similar place. Obviously, we're worlds different, but there's so much in this passage that relates to us in our lives today in Madison. If you have your Bibles, take them out. Otherwise, your bulletins, I believe uh, page 7 was when this reading started. Let's read verses 16 and 17 together again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, we're going to put the car in park right now, and we're going to stop here for a little bit. Because I think there's so much here that's important for us as we engage the culture around us. And with the very fact that he is engaging them. So he sees the idols in the city. He could have run away and said, man, this place is evil. I'm out of here. He could have called down fire from heaven to consume this wicked place and then go back to his church. He could have bemoaned the fact of how wicked this culture is and things are terrible and just be critical of it. He didn't do any of those things. So he reasoned with them. So first thing, right off the bat, he engaged the culture. Where did he engage? He engaged the synagogue, the place where the religious people gathered. Even people on the fringes who were God-fearers, they weren't sure about the Jewish faith, but they were really compelled for some reason to be part of it. Today, that would probably be the church. He also was reasoning with people in the agora, the marketplace. This was the place where people spent a lot of their time, whether it was leisure time or business time. For us, it would be the Capitol Square. It'd be the shops and restaurants, pubs on, on Willie Street, on Monroe Street, on State Street. It would be Olbert Gardens. It would be the Henry Vilas Zoo. It would be all these different places where people gather, the stuff of everyday life. And he was reasoning every day with them about the good news. And then, of course, later on in the passage, we find that he was also taken to the Areopagus, the intellectual elite community the people who were the gatekeepers of all of the religion and morals and beliefs and thinking. And so Paul was in all of these places engaging them in different ways with different messages. It's highly instructive for us And how do we engage with people in these different spaces. So in a few minutes, we will get to how he engaged. And most of the time, we want to jump there. Well, how did Paul do it? How did he talk to these different people? That is really important. But I think we miss something when we jump right to the how. We miss the why. Why did he do this? Why did he engage? What was compelling Paul in the first place? Because in some ways, if we don't get the why right, the how's not going to matter. And so I would say that there are two things right here in the first couple of verses that are important for us to look at and why Paul even engaged the culture. The first is because he saw a familiar but different world. He saw a familiar but different world. 
Now, imagine with me Paul, the apostle, going into this ancient city, and there are temples and shrines and statues to Zeus and Athena and Apollo, and he's looking up the hill at the Acropolis, at the Parthenon. If I'm Paul, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. What did it take to construct all this? This is beautiful, because indeed it was. But he looked at these objects of worship, this uh, one scholar says, a veritable forest of idols. Another scholar said it was almost easier to, to find a god marketplace. Everywhere you looked, there were these fine sculptures, idols to these gods. But Paul saw with different lenses. He did see what everyone else saw, but he saw it in a different way. He didn't see it like a tourist. He almost saw how God sees. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, Father Scott preached on it a few weeks ago, dramatic conversion for Saul, turned from his former way of thinking. He had a deep heart change that impacted how he even sees the world. Yes, he's a citizen of the earth, but he's also a citizen of the new earth. And so he sees things in a different way, not just the objects themselves, but what the objects actually represent. I suppose we should define what an idol is at this point, too. Uh, I guess we could say an idol is a God substitute. Anything that that we put in the place of God or we have our affections oriented toward, our loyalty toward, our trust in. Now, the funny thing is here, though, that the things themselves aren't necessarily bad because God has created us in a way to love beauty, to be attracted to things that are nice, to appreciate beauty, to be able to see Him in the world that He made. What makes something an idol is when we start moving beyond enjoying the good into being enamored by those things and putting ultimate trust in the thing rather than what the thing brings us toward and points us toward. And so we can enjoy the good things, but when we make good things ultimate things, that's what turns them into idols. And our world today then is full of idols too. We make ultimate out of the good things like ourselves, fame, food and drink, family, friends, power, money, esteem, But like Paul, we're called to see a different world. Sometimes we don't see the idols, though. We look around, we see the objects, but for some reason we don't look beyond and see how they're grabbing people's hearts, how people's hearts are oriented toward those, and they're finding their hope and their meaning in those objects. And sometimes I think we don't see them because we're too used to them, and because we actually worship some of the same idols. It really does require a full conversion of our hearts and our longings and our minds. And in one sense, our Christian journey is this. It's God uncovering the idols of our hearts and saying, that's not what you need to find your hope in. Find your hope in me. In a constant challenge, don't find your hope in your job. Don't find your hope in your kids. These are good and, and wonderful things, and you're designed to encounter them and enjoy them, but don't, find, but don't put your ultimate allegiance toward those objects. 
I think of a few years ago. I, I used to teach before I became a, a church planting intern. Uh, I was a college professor out in Virginia, and uh, I would take on, I, I found myself taking on extra classes in order to make more money. And I was trying to make more money so that we could do things in the house, so that we could save for the kids' college, so that I could, really, it was about safety for me. I was finding my security and my safety and the things that I could make so that I had enough in the bank that if something happened, I knew that I could provide for myself. Now, there's nothing against saving. Saving's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. But there is, there is a, subtle, a subtlety in my heart that for me in that time, it was an idol. And I'm grateful that in my Christian community, my small group at that time, we were able to talk about that and process it. I was able to see it for what it was and release the power of that uh, to the Lord and find my hope ultimately in Him and my trust in Him. And I know many of you have similar stories. But I hope that our prayer would be, would be, Lord, reveal idols. Reveal the idols that I have in my heart that I might turn from them and give my full allegiance, my full heart to you. So that's the first reason uh, or the, why Paul engaged he saw a similar but different world. The second reason he engaged stems from that. It comes from that. It's because Paul felt a familiar but different emotion. Paul was really distressed at this. It really bugged him. In the medical community at that time, this word was used to describe a sudden onset of something, almost like a seizure. And it's, it's even in our English language now, paroxysm, P-A-R-O-X-Y-S-M, of a sudden, suddenness of something coming on, but yet it was happening over and over again. It's an imperfect tense. We don't have that in English, but in Spanish, if you know Spanish, it has an imperfect, it's a past, and it, was, it kept on going in the past. That's what this word is saying, that Paul was looking around at all these things, and it was churning his guts. Oh, almost... Sometimes, have you ever felt that way? There's not even words sometimes for the thing that you're feeling. And Paul was really distressed by this. And the really interesting thing is this word was used in the Old Testament, specifically the Greek translation. So it's almost like Paul to refer to how God viewed idolatry. So it's almost like Paul was feeling how Paul, or Paul was feeling how God felt in this situation this inner churning of his gut. And it was because people were taking the things of the earth that they're supposed to enjoy and that they're supposed to point them to God, and they're making those things the gods themselves. Paul's heart was broken for the people. And this is one of the reasons why I think if we jump to the how, we miss something really important. It doesn't matter how we engage people if we're not fully moved by their plight. And so this inner movement is almost a prerequisite to properly engaging the culture around us. I'm not talking about some picky behaviorism. You're just picking on the things that people are doing, and you're kind of an irritated, cranky person. It's more of the, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but I've talked to many parents of adult children and late adolescent children who those children are making then have made some bad choices. They're doing some things that they wish that they weren't doing, but that's not really what the parents are upset about. They're more upset that their child is, is not doing the, 
things that they've been created to do. They're, they're not flourishing in the way that they're supposed to be flourishing, and there's so much more that these people could be doing with their lives. It's, it's not about the behaviors. It's about the, oh, I just wish that they were flourishing in the way that God made them and intended them to live. That's more of what we're talking about here and what Paul was experiencing. Maybe we aren't provoked because we still have some of the same idols, and we do need more cleansing. We need the Lord to reorient our hearts and our longings, to reorder our desires so that we can feel in this way when we look at the culture around us. Now, I realize that we can't create a feeling. There's no way that you can will a feeling. It's feeling, but we can do certain things. We can pray for this inward heart connection with our people. And also, we can put ourselves in Christian community where we're formed in this way, where we're with groups of people consistently, and we're challenged by each other with God's Word to have our loves formed in Christian community. Lord, give us a heart yearning, a heart yearning that these idols that blossom in people's hearts would be overthrown by the power of the gospel. So Paul engaged because he saw a familiar but different world. He felt a familiar but different emotion. And now that brings us, I think, to talk about the how. How did he engage? He spoke a familiar but different word to them. And if we look at what Paul, how Paul talked to different groups, he had different ways of communicating with them. To the Jewish people, he would talk about Jewish history and how Jesus fulfills the Jewish history. That would mean nothing to these Greeks, and so he took a different approach. Well, let's jump down to verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Then he also goes on, even into verse 28, and he quotes some of their poets. So what Paul is doing is he's starting on common ground with his listeners. They would know these things. They're familiar to them, common language. But then he assigns new meaning to these words. He doesn't just leave them as is. He describes them in a different way and says, this is really what we're talking about. Not only that, he moves the story along. He starts to restory them and moves it toward, and the fulfillment of all this stuff is Jesus rising from the dead. So Paul's speech, some people look at it and think, well, was Paul compromising? Was he meeting halfway? Is he like watering this down and saying, as long as you are sincere in your religious approach, it doesn't really matter what you believe? No, he wasn't. But he was using familiar ideas and terms as points of contact so that this was intelligible for the listeners. It's not diplomacy. It's not compromise it's still a call for conversion. And you saw that in the speech. He, he says, ignorance before, that's okay, not anymore. He called them to repent. Because here's what the gospel always does. The gospel always both connects and confronts. 
just does. It connects with people where they are, but then it doesn't leave them there and it moves them toward God. It validates, but then it vetoes. That's what the gospel does. So Paul's not acknowledging how authentic their pagan worship is. He's enlightening what they don't know and understand. I realize that that's hard in our culture. Especially when anytime you offer disagreement, and all of a sudden you hate. <laughs> Any kind of disagreement means you hate the person, which is unfortunate, and which is why a winsome ability to engage people by re-narrating their lives and offering them a different narrative, offering them a different story, is such an important approach in engaging the culture. Saying, here's the story you're living by. You've been living by this way of storying. Let me share with you the story that gives meaning to all attempts to story our lives. There's a great Anglican uh, pastor and theologian named John Stott who said at this moment, many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Not because it's not right, but because, eh, I just don't see how it matters. And so what we do is we restory. We tell the story of God. And in this passage, God is creator. He made everything. God is sustainer. God is the father. God is the judge. God is the source of all life and power. And so we as humans, we radically depend on him for everything that we need and all that we do. So in restoring, we meet people where they are and they move, we move them toward the story, the story that helps them make sense of their worlds and connects with their purpose and how they're designed. And I thought, what are the ways that that looks like for us? How can we do that? Maybe some practical examples. I jotted down a few. So I've got four different ways. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these, but one thing that we might be able to do is affirm people's passions. I think of someone who really cares about the environment. I would say, I love that you care so much about the environment because God made this world and he called it good. Everything is his. It reflects him. But you know what? We live in a world where people don't, haven't taken care of it, and it's, it's kind of fallen apart. But you know what? God in Jesus has reversed that story. And now we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation where everything is restored. And what's even better? We get a foretaste of that now. We get a, a, taking the cookie dough from the bowl before it's even baked. We get a little taste of that new creation even now. So we're restoring that narrative. Or maybe someone who's passionate about human rights. And I love that you care about human rights. It's amazing because people are made in God's image. They're worthy of respect and love and dignity. And their dignity has been taken away. And people treat them like garbage. I love that you're coming alongside and you care and you want to do something about that. One day, we will all worship around the same throne together as one people. Different languages and tribes and nations, 
all equal dignity. But until then, we work to ensure the dignity of all humans. So we can affirm people's passions. We can also notice people's occupations. I was a scientist by trade, a social scientist, before I made the jump back into pastoral ministry. And when I would talk, about, talk with other scientists, we would have very similar conversations about recognizing patterns in the world around us. So we see these things that seem to be in the design of the world, in the social sciences, how we cope with tragedy. What are better ways of communicating? How do we resolve certain issues? Well, as a Christian social scientist, I would be explaining how I study this world because God made it in an orderly way, and he created it such that we can discern the patterns in it in order to flourish. So not only does the Lord show us what flourishing looks like, he weaves flourishing into the creation, and we can examine it and study it, and we can learn what it looks like to flourish and be partners in bringing about the flourishing. We're partnering in this story of recreating and restoring. I'm not a lawyer, don't pretend to be one, but I thought about law as well, especially in this passage because it's talking about judgment, that God is the ultimate judge, and he will one day put everything right and judge everything in a purely righteous way. We distort justice, we don't do it right, we approximate it, we do our best, but we're called to come into this unjust place and bring about in certain ways this justice according to how God has framed it and with the empowerment of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit alive in us. We could also, and this, one, this one's a little, a little sensitive. We need to be really careful in this one because the church has often tripped up here and done a really poor job and really pushed people away when we're supposed to be engaging them. And that is exposing idols, exposing people's idols. Because perhaps the greatest idol of all in our culture is the idol of my identity, my personal identity. Well, I need to figure out who I am. This is just who I am, and I, there's nothing I can do about it. I need to find myself. I need to write my story. No one else is going to write my story, and if I let anyone else do it, it's going to be a bad story. So there's immense pressure to figure out who we are and narrate our own stories. Find out what Enneagram number I am. The good news is that we don't have to create these stories. We're not the one to narrate them. We're the one to come alongside and allow from outside the creator of all who knows us way more intimately than we do ourselves. Say, here's the story, and here's how your story fits into the greater story. It takes the pressure off. How crazy this? Is this really who I am? No, our own stories. Say, oh, who am I? Should I do this? Is this really who I am? No, maybe this is who I am. I'm not sure. Allowing the Lord to write our story. And the final one, name people's longings. We might be watching a movie with someone, listening to a song. These themes come up or words that stir up Longings that are common to human beings, longings for love, longings for connection and intimacy, longings for hope, longings for something more than this. 
We can name those longings. And tell people that, you know what, those longings are actually normal because we live in a world that's fallen, it's broken, things aren't how they should be. So it's, you should have these longings. We're designed to function in that way. And to affirm them that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we actually have a foretaste of what it would be like to live in a place where we don't even need those longings because we're filled completely by everything that we could ever want and hope for. Before we close, I just wanted to mention a couple of little footnotes. The first one, I wanted, I, I know there are some introverts in this room who for some of this Areopagus speech stuff and talking to people, no, you're, no, I can't do that. I want to encourage you in that there are so many ways, shapes, forms that this can take. If you are terrified by talking in front of people, you're not, not, probably not going to be called to the Areopagus. But your call is to do what you do in everyday normal life in a way that engages the culture around you. One-on-one -on -one relationships with friends, noticing, seeing, hearing, being compelled in a way to connect them with the God who restories us. The second one, just wanted to remind us all, myself included, that we're not trying to win someone to an ideology. We're not trying to win someone to a set of instructions or beliefs or key doctrines, as important as they are. We're trying to win someone and introduce someone and invite someone into relationship with a person. We have a personal God who came down and entered our world. It almost gives us the framework for what we're talking about here. God enters our humanity in order to bring us back to him. We enter other people's stories to help bring them back to God. As we're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus within his community, the church, we see a different world, we feel a different emotion, and speak a different word. We engage the culture around us and invite others into this great story, the story of God in Christ making all things new. Amen.